the Convention Collective Sandbox at Portsmouth Comic Con 2019. Welcome everybody to uh, Will Simpson panel, where he's going to be mainly talking about uh, that TV series called Game of Thrones. You may have heard of it. Um, just a quick, uh, a quick chat before about uh, what led you, as an artist, into working on films and then television, and of course that series. Is it, um, it's like most things in my life; they were all accidents, and um, you know, getting into into any kind of film work or TV work was a, a kind of an accident. I mean, I've been working in comic strips for years. I did. I mean, the first thing I ever did was Big Ben, the man with no time for crime, for a magazine called Warrior. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Port of Guildhall, the final talks of the <laughs> Panorama. In Panorama 1, second floor, we have William Simpson Talks Game of Thrones. Well, he was. <laughs> <laughs> he was talking. <laughs> It's like an airport, isn't it? That was very cool. Lots of good information there. Anyway, where was I? I was, uh, yeah, so I, I, I went on to do Transformers. I did um, Judge Dredd and Tyranny Rex and Rogue Tripper, Universal Soldier for 2008. I then did um, Hellblazer for DC Comics um, and some Aliens for Dark Horse, Legends of the Dark Knight and Vamps, all for DC. And, um, and there was a bunch of different things in between. Did some Animal Man, that's right. We'll give Steve, Steve Pugh a rest for a couple of issues, which was good fun. I um, did Indiana Jones briefly. Um, and there's a, there's a, you know, it was a career of drawing pictures. And um, the film world only happened because I happened to be walking through Soho one time and bumped into a friend who was working on a low-budget feature film called 24 Hours in London. And it was a slightly futuristic thing. And he said, we need a storyboard artist. Do you think you could... Um, you know, or would be interested in doing this. And I thought, well, you know, hey, it doesn't sound too difficult. It's a comic strip, isn't it? Um, and that's kind of the way I approached it. And the so the first film I did, I kind of had comics in my head. And um, I, everything that I storyboarded up, I was sending through by fax from Belfast. And uh, two days later, they would be shooting the scene. But I, I kind of enjoyed that. Um, I got into doing some animation with my brother in Belfast. And um, in that time period, I was also asked to do some design work for a couple of other short films. And um, the funny, the one that, that kind of really hooked me was uh, I was designing costumes for two aging superheroes who were meeting up for one final big blast battle. And um, I got invited to come down to set. I mean, this was a two-day shoot. It was a 10-minute you know, short. And um, my friend asked me to go down to set to, to see some of the shooting. And I thought, oh, well, okay, I'll do that. And it was a Sunday, and I, I went down to the house that they were filming part of the, the story in. And somebody handed me a sandwich and a bottle of beer. And I thought, this is a really interesting job. You know, I did a bit of design work, and now this is how, you know, they, they kind of treat you when you come to a thing. And I thought, I kind of like the film industry. And after that, I got very interested, and um, I ended up doing a lot more film work. Um, first feature film after the, the low-budget one was a thing um, based on the Spike Milligan book, uh, Pacoon, which was a crazy film, and it was the movie that made me want to direct, because um, the director, it was a low-budget film, and he was doing 24, 25 takes of everything, and you could see that he got it in the second or third take. And you could see this on screen. You, you watch the, the uh, actors de, you know, deplete as they're performing, and you kind of went, stop this, move on, you've shot it. You know, in your head, you're saying all this stuff, so you realised I want his job. So it was such a perfectionist, that he, or maybe it was neurotic, that he needed to do that? I don't know if it was perfectionism or, at all. I think, I think it was just one of those things. It was a, it was a mistake, mm. you know? I mean... I mean 
you know, one of the things I learned, which of course helps me, I guess, with storyboarding, was that if you've got if you've got a film worked out on paper, the plan is there, and you should really not be wasting time. So you understood the structure of certain, you know, how to create scenes or how to sort of structure movies. Is that what you think? Is that where it came from? That's inspiration. I think actually all of that comes from comic strips, actually, because you know, when I was a kid, I spent so much of my time watching movies. You know, in the days when there was only, what, three channels? And um, uh, BBC Two on a Saturday afternoon used to have brilliant movies, and I would spend the time watching those. My mum loved her movies. We would sit and talk away about these things. Yeah. And, um, black and white. Yeah, the, the, yeah black absolutely. And white films, you know. Brilliant black and white. Black and white was great, which is just like the comic strips that I was doing in the first place anyway. They were in black and white. So the thing is, you watched all these films, and so all of that film information was going into your head, even though you weren't. You weren't really aware of that, so that when you when you end up years later getting to work in film, which which is such a weird kind of turnaround, the um, the knowledge of everything you'd watched over all those years was somewhere in your head anyway. But that was what I'd been using when I was doing comic strips because one of the things with doing comic strips and and because of the style of artwork that I was doing, I was always looking at it as in a way like a mini movie. I mean, any of you that read comic strips, I mean, the world that's created in a comic strip. Some, some, you know, some of the stuff is just phenomenal. You know, some of the artists take you off into fantastic places, and the thing is that that's all done on paper. It doesn't cost very much to do that, but the imagination that there, that's there is incredible. And the thing is, if you're to do that in a movie, it costs an absolute fortune. But, of course, as a comic strip artist, you're doing it all on paper, and it's fantastic. But that is what you bring to a film. Yeah, I mean, you could, well, Will Eisner was hugely cinematic, towards the end of his run on the spirit, Frank Miller, who was influenced by Eisner, Neil Adams. I mean, of course, these things are exposed when you try and transpose some of those things, like the spirit movie. Oh, it was done God. On, it was done, yeah, I know. It was the worst movie ever made. You, it didn't work on a green screen at all. I mean, they were trying to, you know, you, can't, you need a massive budget to make it work. Yeah, and it's fun, but one of the things that, I mean, I remember, you know, reading the spirit comics, and I don't think it ever in my mind I ever heard him going, this is my city. You know, that was definitely a Batman thing. It wasn't a spirit thing. That's right at the beginning of the film. Is it? It is right yes. at the beginning of the and film. Yes, and that was after about 10 seconds. I remember thinking, oh, oh this is going to be absolutely bloody awful. Yeah. That's 10 seconds into the film. I was on a plane, and I was stuck there, and I, did, I watched the whole thing, and I was with Mike Scholl, who just did the previous panel. I said, how could he sit through that? Massacre. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> because you had to, because it was the spirit. It was something that you'd grown up with, yeah. and um, you wanted it to be good. I remember that, because cause I remember... Um, Oh God! Um, oh, what was that actress that was in it? Um, oh, Eva Mendes. Yes, yes, yes. And I remember thinking at the end of the film, Eva Mendes's bottom didn't save this movie because <laughs> because it was prominent there. And I mean, she was fantastic, but the movie was so bad. You know, this was not Sin City. It's embarrassing to me. Anyway, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Anyway, um, yeah, it wasn't Sin City. That's right, because that did actually sort of work in that respect. Sin, I love Sin City. I mean, uh, again, it's one of those films that for, for a comic strip to be transposed into cinema, I think that worked incredibly well because it was so stylistic as a comic book and thus it works that way. I loved I loved 300. You know, I mean, I have always loved that story, but again, Frank Miller's book being turned into the film, and you sit there in the audience, just, you know, anybody that was a comic fan, you're just pulling in this stuff and loving it. You know, it really was uh, good fun. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty loyal to the sorts of material. Yeah. I mean, before we go any further with regarding that particular program, um, when you switched from the comics, I mean, you did Hellblazer, I mean, you did one of the greatest storylines in Hellblazer, which is Dangerous Habits, which was actually the basis for the movie with yes. Keanu Reeves, believe, believe it or not can't really see that but it is the case I mean you, you were working in a field which was demanding but which is which for you became more demanding was did you think it was easy to do comics or was it easy did you find it was more difficult to do storyboarding what was the story there uh, I don't I, I you know fundamentally an artist draws and the thing is that um you know, I've been drawing all my life, and and I've been very lucky just that, that I've ended up drawing things that um, have turned out to be very interesting. You don't know when you're drawing things that they're going to actually turn into some kind of success. I mean, 
you know, as I say, when I was drawing Dangerous Habits, I had no idea that it was going to be what it was going to be. I liked the character. Mm. Um, it actually, it used to kind of, though, grate on me a bit because it was, you know, I'm working in the world of horror. And um, I was finding myself, after a, a period of time, the, relieving the tension by drawing angels. <laughs> so it obviously was pretty bad. I think it was getting to me at some point because some of, I mean, Garth did come up with some bloody awful stuff to have happening in that st- in the, the whole s- set of stories that I worked on. And um, some of them I thought were incredibly funny and other things just were really disturbing. And, um, you know, I, I kind of, I, I would work on that and each time I would finish an, an issue, I would find myself drawing something else. And it was it was kind of like take the pressure off. But when it comes to um, comic strips and storyboarding, you know, it's still telling a story. The only thing that's really different is that you're changing uh, panel structure. You're actually, you know, on a comic page, a comic page is turned into a piece of artwork. I mean, you're, you're working on it. And when you do the piece of artwork... You're wanting the lead up to a, a particular page to be a certain way, and you want to have uh, coming off from that afterwards. You want it to lead away in a different way to the next big moment, and so on. And there, and there's a way where you're also trying to design the pages in cer- a certain way to make them different, to keep it interesting, so that when you turn a page, you're looking at something new, or you're you're pulled into the way the story's being told. Um, in, a, in, a, in storyboards, you've got the same frame size constantly. So you're trying to make sure that the story's being told within that frame size and following certain disciplines within uh, film storytelling. And the other thing is it's never complete until you see it on screen. When you see the finished piece of work, you know where all the actors have been uh, in doing it and, and there's been all the special effects and all the visual effects and so on, and you look at it on screen and you recognise the underlying background content of it as being the stuff that you drew but the rest of it's magic and that's when you see what your work has come to whereas in a comic strip it has to be the comic page you yes. know the rest is closure the rest is up to the reader in that yeah. respect especially you know you read the, you're reading through the panels it, that, that is up to the reader to figure out the closure there. well that's just how the comics work anyway um, so yeah you did quite a few films you worked on TV a bit you did you had your animation studio and then one day, what is exa- how exactly did it come about that you ended up working on this series? And when did you first meet Benioff and Vice? When did it all happen? When did it all come? When did it all come together? Was it the fact that you were in Belfast that, that had anything to do with it? Well, yeah, but it was also the fact that I was working with the most brilliant producer, uh, Mark Huffam, who um, I mean, Mark's past was uh, he'd, he'd been uh, a line producer on Saving Private Ryan, and he was responsible, God help us, for Mamma Mia. And he, you know, I mean, Mark had actually made, uh, you know, big inroads into cinema. He's, he's worked with Ridley Scott a lot. And um, I was working on a feature film called Your Highness over in Belfast, the one with uh, Danny McBride and James Franco and Natalie Portman. And um, uh, Mark had asked me to do some concept work on it for the costume designer, Hazel Webb Crozier. And I'd, um, I'd done some drawings of costumes for different characters. Uh, Hazel would hit me with, with some of the ideas and I'd go away and do, do this stuff. And um, that was sent away to the guys in America. They loved the drawings that I'd done. Um, there was even a, one of the characters that I designed um, in it that they wanted to find somebody who was like that character because they loved what I'd drawn with him. And so... Um, uh, so I got a job then on that film. I mean, Mark had me lined up to do concept artwork. Now, this is not like loads of computer concept work. It's nothing like that at all. It was a lot of pencil drawings and a few paintings. And um, because a concept is an idea. So, you know, for me, sitting down and drawing an idea is just as clear as having to sit down and, and um, you know, be deliberately super kind of computerized. Um, and... Um, Anyway, I couldn't do that. I had to do what I did. So the thing is, um, for two and a half months, I was drawing these insane concepts where, um, you know, David and Danny were kind of working together on this stuff and, and Danny McBride would come over to me and say, well, 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 we got this idea. We're going to have this 
big snake monster and we're all going to go walking across the back of this thing and suddenly it's going to come alive and it's going to start doing shit and we're all going to be falling off and it'll be great. Can you draw that? I said, yes, Danny. And uh, I'd sit down and do my drawing and Danny would come back the next day and see the drawing that I'd done. Go, well, this is great. It's too expensive. Let's do this. And he would come up with another idea. And I had to do this for a couple of months and it was hilarious because I had the best time drawing the best things that you've never seen in the movie because they never made it to the screen. So there's about, there's about 10% got onto the screen. What? Have you still got those pictures? Oh, you? yes, I've got those pictures. Uh, no, they're, they're some great... There'll be a book one day about <laughs> Some great stuff. Um, the thing is... The thing is... Yeah, it should be a book. Mm. Anyway, yeah, it was nice. Oh, yeah. the, the, the thing is, during that period, Mark Huffam had come to me and said... Um, would I like to do some extra work, weekend work, on, on a potential TV series? And I, I said to Mark, oh, that sounds interesting. I said, what is it? And he said, I can't tell you. And I said, okay, what's it about? And he said, it's medieval fantasy. And I thought, well, that's what I'm doing. I'm drawing medieval fantasy with these lunatics. And um, uh, so Mark said, could I meet the supervising art director and the production designer, which were the only two people in town. There was no other crew members at all because this was a potential TV series. There was no guarantee that it was ever going to happen. So I went over... Was, you went, was this, was, no, no, is this 2009, 2010, right that time? Uh, it was kind of around that time, because it was, yeah. it was pre-pilot. Yeah. And I went over, and um, they asked me, could I do some castle drawings based on certain locations? Could I do some knights in armour? Um, could I do a little bit of a village thing? Could and I they, do... They were not referring to Songs of Ice and Fire at all? Nope. They, they didn't bring them to... Nope. Um, they, they, they give me little descriptive bits of uh, passages from, from a book, but there were no headers, so I didn't know what it was. And um, there was no references to family names or any of that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of giant wolves and, um, and beheadings. And um, so I went away and I did this artwork over, we- over a couple of weekends and some evenings um, after I got home from my Your Highness day. And um, I would turn out the stuff and I, I handed it back over to them. They sent it away to America. Um, I went back to my day job, just staying on Your Highness, having fun. And Mark came to me about halfway through, three quarters of the way through Your Highness and said, we've got Game of Thrones. And I said, is that what I was working on? Still not knowing what Game of Thrones was, but kind of had some idea. And um, he said, yes. And I said, well, does this mean that I have a job on it after I finished on this? And he said, absolutely. And that's how I got my job on Game of Thrones. I mean, honestly, this is, this is so normal to, to everything that seems to happen to me in life. There's, there's very fluky meetings that take place and suddenly, you know, two years down the line or something, I end up with a job on something that was talked about, you know, before. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, you see, Mark knew the work that I'd done because of stuff I'd done for him before. And the stuff that I'd done on Your Highness, they were all very pleased with. And it became, it became one of those things where it was a similar process was used to get Game of Thrones to come to Ireland. Because, you know, the proof had to be there that we could actually do this work. So I was very lucky. It is right place, right time kind of thing. So it's quite common with artists. I've noticed that today when yeah. the other interviews are done. Yeah, it is, that, it is that. But then again, if you put yourself about, if you've got work extant, people will spot it eventually. Yeah. I guess. I mean, the, the fact that I'd drawn years and years and years of comic strips and I'd done a whole bunch of other movies did help <laughs> in the fact that I was capable of doing this stuff. It's not like, a, you know, I, I just was some guy doing street paintings or something. So when it came time to commissioning the pilot with David and Dan and, every, and everyone else involved or the, in the, you know, before the first season, apparently the pilot wasn't good enough the first time, had to redo it. How much, mm. how much was there? You did concept as well as, mm. as, well well, as storyboarding. The, fir- the first thing that happened with me was um, they told me uh, they really want you over there. When can you finish? And I said, well, I've still got stuff to do in Your Highness. And Margaret said to me, well, could I do half a week on Game of Thrones and half a week in Your Highness um, until it's all done and dusted? And I said, sure. So it was a Wednesday. And um, I went over to the um, production offices for Game of Thrones and this was the pilot. And the first thing I got asked to do was design the weapons. So all the hero weapons that you get um, uh, in Game of Thrones, 
Um, certainly for the first couple of seasons were stuff that I got to design. So ice and needle and long claw and um, Dothraki weapons and the hounds weapons and Lannister weapons and cat's paw. Um, all of these things were things I got to design first. And um, then they, they said, we need White Walkers. Can you come up with something for the White Walkers? And I said, sure. And I did pay a couple of paintings of the White Walkers and some drawings and stuff. And so that was the next thing. And then there was carriages for Cersei and there was um, uh, things like the Godswood Tree. You know, I did a couple of paintings of the Godswood Tree to start everything rolling. Um, the Three-Eyed Raven, that came later, but I did, I did the Three-Eyed Raven. Um, and there was a whole bunch of stuff like that that was pure concept work. And that was my starting point. But while I was doing that, the director at the time on the pilot was working out scenes and had asked me to do, could I do some storyboarding for particular scenes? And I said, sure. So I was alternating between the two things. And um, I mean, that's not particularly usual in film, but it, it's certainly what happened on, on Game of Thrones. Because back then, whatever amount of money there was was still limited compared to what it became. You know, by season five, I mean, my God. The money was just everywhere, I guess. Yeah, well, it wasn't. But um, Battle of the Bastards cost more than several episodes of the first series. That's just, just more than like, that's more than likely. Now you were saying about the pilot um, that it was redone. It wasn't redone. What happened was um, it wasn't redone as a pilot. Um, the pilot definitely was considered not worthy of being screened because none of us have seen it. But there's two scenes in the first episode that were lifted from the pilot and you kind of can see the difference in the quality of the the camera work and everything on it It, it's it's much uh brighter the 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 colors are are very defined and um one of the sequences is bran running across the top of the the battlements and if you look at that scene compared to what you've just seen before and what you're going to see afterwards you'll kind of realize it seems kind of out of place now, it's out of place because it's a whole different thing. What they did with... And, and also they changed some of the actors from the pilot to who we ended up knowing and loving in the series um, afterwards. So they had to reshoot certain things as well on the basis of different actors. I mean, there's a big banquet scene which I think Ned Stark's hair changes from from shot to shot because... Um, um, it was edited in that way. Yeah, part of it was original stuff, part of it was, was other stuff. Um so it's kind of interesting. Those first, that very first episode is a very odd one, and um, uh, but uh, the HBO considered it to be worthy of actually putting the money into it. They could see it from from what they'd done. They they did take the risk, and my God, was that a good risk to take? It was. It was a very good scene setter. But I thought the reason why they, the original, the, what we just talked about, the, the one that was rejected, was to do with the fact that Bran surprises Cersei and Jaime, and but. He doesn't. Nothing happens. It's not to do with that. It's there was no reason they weren't causing flagrante or something like that. Was, oh, they were in the in the original. Oh yes, I drew it. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that was misinformed. Absolutely. <laughs> you shouldn't believe everything you hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. It's probably clickbait. Oh, I did draw it. Oh God, that's true. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear. Yes. Anyway. Okay. Well, there's a, there's a clanger for you. Um, so anyway, yeah. That aside, um, <laughs> no, I thought it was a very good scene set. I'm not surprised HBO took it up. They needed to do something different. It's still an HBO series. You can certain tropes about it still remind me of the Sopranos because it's, for me, it's uh, the Sopranos meets Middle Earth. You see, the brilliant thing about Game of Thrones. Now, I know George had written the book. The brilliant thing about that is, I mean, you think about the first thing that's established in Game of Thrones are the White Walkers. And you don't see them again until the end of season two. I mean, it's fantastic. You're hit by this horrendous kind of set of characters that you see beheading people. And they're whispered about. And that's it. And then the rest of it, for two seasons, is intrigue, incest, murder, um, corruption, political um, uh, deviancy. But like the government today, I guess. Anyway, it was, it was no, no, all no, no, like no. that. And, <laughs> and we finally, you know, we finally, it takes two seasons of absolute destruction to get to the point where the things that you saw in the first season start coming out of the woodwork and we are starting to think, oh my God, it's the big bad. Mm. And, um, and I think that's superb. What a setup for anything. 
But so the point of, of that very first season, you've been given this thing that you learn nothing more about until you get to the end of it. You don't, you, you don't get anything. You come to the end of the season and Ned's lost his head and everybody's fractured and running and, um, and that's it. You still haven't seen these guys. It takes two seasons. It's amazing. I, th- I think it's a brilliant... I mean, the fact that we kept watching... Yeah, I did think that Jon Snow would have a massive art because at the beginning he's virtually an outcast. His, mm-hmm. his mother, well, his stepmother doesn't want to even talk to him. You know, mm-hmm. Captain Stark doesn't even want to know who he is. Oh, there's a lot of good stuff there. A lot of good tension and, and oh, kind of yeah. awful family goings on. Oh, yeah. And lots of thoughts about who was responsible for what and who was what. I mean, the thing was, I'd only read the first book, you know, because every, every season I got given the script, so you, you realise you didn't need to read the other books. Of course, yeah. yeah. I mean, how was how difficult was it in terms of working with? Were they quite demanding showrunners, line producers? Were they quite difficult to work with? Or were they easy to work with? I honestly got- can say that ninety six percent of my time was bliss, and I had a couple of dodgy moments, but most of it was bliss. And and it wasn't with those guys; they were fantastic. I loved working with David and Dan and uh, Chris Newman. Chris Newman's phenomenal. I mean, he kind of held so much of the stuff together. And Bernie was phenomenal. She, I mean, just—I mean, she ruled over the the whole thing for all this time period. So there was this lovely thing of creation and production, and it and it gelled. You know, no matter what tensions may have been going on with it within that world, because obviously I'm not privy to any of that stuff. But the point was, all these people discussed, and it all gelled. I only know the bits where I would draw something. And you would hear when you were being asked to draw a second version that, okay, it was too expensive, the first version, (laughs) because there was an awful lot of, well, how do we tell this story? Okay, here's the ridiculous version. How do we tell it to keep it compact and and make sure that we save a lot of money? Were you ever on set for the first series? I was on set for a lot of this stuff over uh, over the first bunch of years, maybe, maybe up until season four or five. And then... Basically, I just was in my room drawing all the time because there was so much stuff to do. But in the early days where they were all finding their way, um, a lot of the time we would have started shooting with a version of stuff already drawn, um, but then changes needed to be made. But the only days that you would be able to get the directors was days that they were shooting. So uh, they would arrange for you to go over to set and um, uh, in between takes... You would sit and work out what needed to be done, and then you w- you'd watch the take happening. You'd wait, and then when the take was over, come over and talk to you again about a little bit more. And so for me, that was paradise because I mean I like it just as much as everybody else. I love being on set. I mean it's fantastic. And for me, because I like directing, I love being on set, watching this stuff, and learning from all of this stuff. And it and it is amazing. You know, you only get to see one version of a scene. You know, you, you, we all get, we're watching the TV programme, we've got one version of the scene up on screen, and we're enjoying that. But when you're on set, you get to see maybe three or four versions. And they can, can vary a bit. They, they? Oh, they can. They can. I saw, I was on set for, okay, what season was it when um, Tyrion has to tell Shay that she's got to go away for her own safety? Four, I think. It's Is not it four? four? Not that long before he's betrayed. Does anybody know? It was four. Five, four? Okay, the consensus is four. That was interesting. Well, it's it's it was kind of a, it's it's where she um, yeah. Well, then it's before that, you but it might might be in an earlier episode. But the point was, it was that whole thing where he can't tell her the real reason or whatever. He's he's trying to be hard with her, um, and bronze in the room, and she reacts really badly to it, of course. But I remember being on set that day because um, I had to talk to Alex Graves, the director. And um, I went over, I, I, I had to wait for Alex, and um, I saw them play out the scene, and it was, it was brilliant. But then Peter Dinklage said, look, I want to try something else. So Peter did the scene in a slightly different way. And you know, obviously on set, you're, everybody's meant to be quiet, this was a set where you could have heard a pin drop. It was just so quiet. It was, people were hardly breathing. And you were watching Peter go through his moves, doing this thing. The emotion that was built up in the room was insane. You're standing there witnessing this stuff, and it's like real people doing this thing. This is a hard moment. 
And I have to say, that was the most incredible thing to see. I mean, I'm standing there, and it's just like I'm buzzing away watching this and feeling like, oh, my God. And I'm over there just to talk about storyboards, <laughs> but I'm watching this moment played out. And it's little things like that that I'm glad are in my head. Because, sorry, Peter Dinklage was allowed to say, can I try it like this? Oh, God, yes. I mean, the thing is, Peter, you see, by that stage, Peter knew that character inside out. Um, I mean, he knew the character inside out from very early on, but by then, there's a trust. I mean, on, on a film set, if, if, if everybody's working as a, as a proper team, there's a real trust between um, uh, directors and actors and, and the producers, knowing they know the difficulties of certain people and they know the, the pluses of certain people. And the thing is that everybody's trying to do their best version of this show. And, um, and, and Peter being phenomenal anyway, it was just the most amazing thing to watch this happening. And I'm sure there was loads of other scenes where an actor would take the lead on something because they had, a, they had something that was worth trying. It's, it's not always the case, but definitely um, it was one of those things where if something wasn't quite working, there's always a reason for it. So it's, it's better to allow a different version to be played out if you've got the time. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of directors wouldn't do that. A lot of directors yeah. wouldn't say, no, no, this is my way and that's it. You see, there's this beauty in, in the TV thing as well. You've got to remember, of course, that um, it's the writers that are king on TV because the directors, you know, it's like I would have five different directors in a season. So, so those directors aren't always... Over every season, some of them arrive, you know, just for certain seasons and come back maybe two seasons later. And um, you would have this constant flow of people who, in a way, were looking to the people who were there longest to understand more about it. I mean, I remember um, oh, Dan Sackheim saying to me one day about, you know, hey, you know more about this than me, you know, sort of thing. You know, help me out here. And it was just—it was just this wonderful thing of of, um, of working with Dan, who I thought was amazing. I mean, he, he was—he, I, I think he only did two episodes or something. But Dan was just—he had his own way about things, and uh, um, it was—it was brilliant. But I, I just thought that I, I can't be advising you. What are you saying? You know, kind of thing. Because it is that thing. But but you do then. You do know certain aspects, and you do talk through certain things. But. You know, in the end, it's going to be the director's version. True. Well, I mean, but then the structure is partly down to you, of course. Well, part of it, part 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 of it is just um, kind of understanding things. I mean, we had, we had great discussions. There's loads of times where you're working with a director who's who's kind of a good friend, and you start looking through the script and you start analysing certain things and you start thinking, but would this character do this now? Should they do that now? Can we pitch this to David and Dan? And you would. There'd be, there'd be little... I mean, most of the time, they were right. Um, you're not. But the thing is, um, there's certain things, and there's certain things I still have in my mind that I wish they'd done, that they didn't do. But that's uh, neither here nor there. You can oh, give us uh, one example, if you like. Oh, but I... No, the, I, I, let, let's just wait until everybody sees everything. And, oh, okay. and it's, it's a year down the line, or two years down the line, and when people are able to look back on it differently, oh, no, it's well, just... You, don't want to you want to save it up for the extras on the box set. <laughs> no, <I'm> not. <laughs> no, because this is, this is something that I just still disagree with to this day. There's, there's just little things that, um, that pop up in your mind when you're thinking of storytelling, you know. Um, there's, lovely, there's lovely little moments in it. I mean, one of my favourite moments on uh, Game of Thrones, working with David and Dan, was, was a sequence where um, it's the funeral, you know, the, 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 that wonderful funeral of the Tullys, where... Um, What's his name? Edmure is firing his arrows out to the barge that's floating off, and he misses every time. And um, the blackfish comes down, and and he pushes him aside, and he takes the bow and arrow, and he fires his arrow out, and it hits. He doesn't even wait to see it hit. He just turns away. Then turns and walks. That is true. Now, to be that confident, there's a reason for that. Now, and when I was drawing the storyboard, I mean, I'd listened to David Dan, and um, I'm working through the storyboard. And there's this little moment where I suddenly thought, what would he do? Why is he so confident? And I thought, he's going to check the wind. And I figured, I'm going to draw him looking up at a pennant floating in the breeze. And and we're going to see that pennant, and we're going to see him from the pennant uh, angle, and we're going to know that he's checked the wind so that when he fires his arrow, he knows exactly where it's going. And the guys loved it, and they left it in there. 
And it's, it's a little tiny moment in that scene, but it's logical. It's something that says so much more about the blackfish because Edmure didn't do any of that. Edmure's like firing, 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 missing all the time. Um, and Blackfish is not like that. He's as tough as old nails. This is a guy that has survived so many things. He would know something extra. So that something extra was me. This <laughs> way, it made the scene very memorable. Well, I think really for, for me, it was perfect watching it and just seeing that thing because, you know, it's 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 that thing that you need to know about a character. You need to understand why, you know, why they're they're better. Yes. Yeah, what's the underlying motivation, also the experience, the mm-hmm. history behind them, everything. It's, you can sit on their faces, I and mean, that's another aspect. Yeah. I mean, getting, that leads into another question about that. Is, did you, you had all these characters, did you envision them? When you saw them on the screen, do you think, yeah, that's how I expected them to be? And the actors in question, yeah, that's how I thought they should look like. Well, I mean, there's another, you, could ask that about, you could ask that to George R. R. Martin as well, of course. Is that how you thought they would turn out? You know, who, 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 like, I'm, I'm sure, I mean... George wrote it, so I'm sure that he probably had a different version of a lot of things in his mind because it's David and Dan reading it and it's their version of what a character should be. And the thing is, for me, I mean, I was going by their scripts and also some of the time, I mean, back at the beginning, I didn't know who some of the actors were going to be. So a lot of the, a lot of the things I was designing around characters, because it's another thing, when I was doing the weapons, I couldn't think of the weapons as a separate entity. I had to think of them in the hands of a character. So I was drawing all these character drawings um, basically because it was the only way I could make sense of it. And I think that's the comic strip side of things. You know, I needed to know if, if this guy Ned Stark has this giant bloody sword, what is he What is he meant to look like? How is it meant to seem? So one of the first drawings I, I ever did was um, a version of a guy that looks a bit like Sean Bean holding this massive blooming sword. And, um, and it was the same thing. I mean, there was things uh, like when I did my drawings of um, kind of a version of Cal Drogo, and I remember David and Dan coming in and go, where can we get this guy? <laughs> because at that point he hadn't been cast. Oh, which so is good. No, 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 no. But I mean, they must have had Jason Momoa in mind. This wasn't, you know, I, I, I didn't do that thing that they then, you know, must have cast on the basis of that. But it was nice to hear it and to think that I'd actually hit something with the drawing. That, that made them feel, yeah, this is pretty cool, you know? Yeah, and, they, so, and the uniforms, I mean, you did, you, the Night's Watch uniforms, the Lannister night, uniforms. Oh, stuff, well, no, I did, I did, I did uh, in a way, help on those things, uh, certain things. Now, that's all the costume department. I mean, I was just, you know, uh, one of the, I mean, there's a lot of early drawings for the, for the pilot stuff where the costume designer was thinking Japanese. Mm. Well, it's, it's, you can see that in the Lannister uniform. Yeah, and the thing, but it was even more so. And we and I done I, uh, all these drawings of, of all sorts of different helmets and stuff, um, and armor based on uh, something slightly more Japanesey, and um, uh, you know the realization was it was going to be so expensive to do that, which is why you get the great Lannister um, uniforms that they have. I mean the stuff was brilliant on screen, but that's the costume design side of things I mean she was absolutely incredible yeah it does look more expensive than it might have been I mean, yeah, just, that's the point it does the visual yeah. aspect of it is phenomenally yeah. good I mean that's, that is key to one of the key things about the series not obviously all yeah. for me the script is, is more important just about anything but in that particular way yeah it has to look right you yeah. can't, can't, can't go against that and the colour scheme for each area you know for each part of Westeros and Essos mm. of course the colour scheme is different for each part of it you know the Stark area is brown to black and then you know, further south, when you, you've got King's Landing, it's yeah. warmer, red-orange colours. That's you know, right. Anyway, so that was, probably, was that down to you at all? I know. I mean, that's, that's, that's down to George R. R. Martin's map. The, you, know, you know, I mean, I don't know if, ever, if any of you read the Conan books by Robert E. Hard, but Conan, there was always a map drawn at the beginning of the Conan books that you saw, yeah. and you kind of realised this is, this is Europe, and the placement of... Uh, the, the world of, of Conan, the Sumerians, he uh, sort of slightly northwards, and and the um, Aquilonia a little bit further south, and looking quite French, and you kind of you kind of watch this this um, landmass that goes into something like Kush being North Africa and stuff, um, and uh, and Set being uh, somewhere Egyptian. I mean, it's all there in Robert E. Howard's map. Now, George did a map like that, of course. We've seen it all in the beginning of the books. And when you place that map over Europe, you can sort of see where, you know, where these places relate to. Mm-hmm. So, of course, 
Um, you know, the lands of the Starks, definitely Scottish Irish, cold, bleak. You know the usual thing. Well, the wall a lot of dour, serious people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Brilliant. very honourable compared to the absolutely the corrupt Southerners there. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, um, they're all from Cambridge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one other question I had to ask was: I mean, at what point did you realise that this was going to be huge? Um, I think for me, I mean, because. We kind of knew it was it was hitting the mark at the end of um, well when we started the second series, and people were all talking about the first series. We kind of thought, wow, we've we've got onto something here. But for me, the moment was when I was watching the Big Bang Theory, and the guys are arguing over a sword in the comic shop, and I'm thinking. Well, there's got to be one of my swords <laughs> because, you know, they're arguing over one that's meant to be um, from uh, Game of Thrones. And I said, well, I designed all of the early stuff, so it's got to be one of those. And it was hilarious, you know, because it, cause it had moved into popular culture. It had gone into The Simpsons. It had gone into to, um, Big Bang Theory. And then you were finding cop shows that were talking about Game of Thrones. And you were suddenly in this whole thing where it was being mentioned and referenced and everybody knew exactly what it was about they knew the characters that were being mentioned or they knew the world that was being mentioned and they knew why and in in what way it was being referenced you know to intrigue that was going on in particular programs so you kind of thought jesus we've just created something that's that's um it's become part of world entertainment and will exist there you know when when people get old they'll probably be sitting there going hey do you remember game of thrones when it was on tv (laughs) Hell more. <laughs> yeah, never saw it myself. Anyway, it'd be like that. <laughs> I mean, you go on Facebook, the world is of other people who haven't watched it and have watched yeah. it. And yet the people that haven't watched it know all about it. Mm. I mean, this is the interesting thing. I, I guess most of you folks have actually seen it. I guess. But the point is, there's so many people come up to me and go, hey, you work on Game of Thrones. I've never watched an episode, but I hear it's really good. And it's like, this is the common thing that I get. And I'm thinking, well, where are all the people that have actually watched it? Because they're all out there somewhere. Oh, maybe they're watching it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is one of the things that I loved. When I went out, and, um, HBO sent me out to Bangkok to do the um, Bangkok Comic Con. It was one of the, the first, I mean, I think it might have been the second year that it had existed. But it was the first time HBO had did a, done a big push on stuff. And that was where I found out that in Asia... It was the most illegally downloaded program ever, and nobody seemed to be ranting it off um, legitimate uh, means. They just were downloading it everywhere, and everybody knew about it. It was just phenomenal. So the phenomenon has stretched all over the world, and this is the strange thing with Game of Thrones, you know. It's had something unique to everybody. So that's that's crazy. Well, yeah, a lot of individual elements. Um, I think that was... Well, we're now going to throw it open to the audience, I think. Um, before we go any further, don't ask about the last three episodes. <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell you anyway, so it's exactly. all right. Exactly, he's sworn to silence. He yeah. knows nothing. The blood has come out of my veins on that oh. one. Oh, yeah. they, they have a drone that flies around after me, you know, checking me out. And he knows if I say anything, I'm going to get zapped. <laughs> not even a hint. <laughs> but uh, I'm still worthy of being, um, of being kidnapped <laughs> for three more episodes. <laughs> they wouldn't care. <laughs> They'd send me out in the barge and set Edmure out there to fire arrows at me. <laughs> Anybody got any questions? Indeed. Yes. Anybody? Oh boy, we see it's hard. It is hard to top Game of Thrones. I mean, it it, it was huge. Is I mean, I I finished last July on Game of Thrones, um, and yet you know the storyboard books coming out in June. Um, so I still was working on bits of stuff for for that. But I mean, it it, it is just one of these big epic parts of your life. But you know, I was I was mentioning Your Highness. I think Your Highness was probably one of the funniest things I ever worked on. The film's ludicrous; it really is just nuts. But the actual working on that film was brilliant. It was absolutely beautiful to work on that. Uh, storyboarding wise, I mean, I actually really loved working on the sci-fi movie Halo, based on the game. 
Now, I know the movie didn't do particularly well, but I loved working on it. And one of the reasons was... Um, so I was in with the director one day and we were talking about um, a particular sequence of stuff and I kept referring to the ship as a raptor. And um, and, and I said, oh, look, I'm really sorry. I, I, I'm, I was a massive fan of Battlestar Galactica. I really loved it. And, and the ship looks a bit like a raptor. He said, oh, I know, he says. I directed some of Battlestar Galactica and that was me in heaven. I just thought, oh, my God. I am working with a science fiction master here. This is superb. So there's little moments like that in your life where you actually feel, you know, pretty satisfied with things. There's other films where where I I got given a free hand to just storyboard lots of uh, lots of sequences, and um, I kind of en- enjoyed a lot of that. But yeah, Your Highness, Your Highness was something else. And then the other things that I loved doing in the films, little short things that I directed myself, were, were uh, you know I suddenly found out the reasons why I like directing. Um, I remember on my my first short film, we got the only two days of good weather in Belfast. The only two days in a year. That year had been a disaster, and every every weekend that was coming up, one day would be sunny, the next day would be pouring with rain. It was just awful. And um, the cameraman had asked me, you know, what conditions would you like? I need two sunny days, you know, so that we get all this dappled light over everything, you know, <laughs> shadows, um, all this stuff. And um, he laughed at me like I was a complete demented fool because you wouldn't get that in Northern Ireland. And the weekend that was chosen to shoot it, we went out in the morning and the skies were clear and the sun was coming up and it was casting all these shadows. That I'm thinking, Jesus, this is amazing. And I said, what's the weather forecast like for tomorrow? It's meant to be the same. And we started shooting that and I did my first three setups Um the shots went incredibly well. We did a tracking shot on the bonnet of a car with people pushing the car, and it it um, it gets a, it gets a car moving into place. Another one pulling off. A girl walking down a road. Another girl getting into the car that pulls off, and all of this stuff happens in one take. And I realised, well, we've got it. I don't need to do another take. You won't get it as perfect as that. So we went with that. And then um, when we were setting up for the fourth um, shot. And uh, I'm, it's, it's such a beautiful day. The sun's everywhere. The light is amazing. I'm looking at this monitor, this lovely widescreen shot, because I like shooting widescreen. So I'm sitting there looking at this. And um, I've got a black hood over my head watching this. And I'm grinning away to myself because there's this beautiful shot. My friend Sarah's standing against the wall. There's this, this line of bricks disappearing off. There's that lovely, wet, warm color. There's the dapple light coming from the trees and I'm looking at this perfectly positioned shot and somebody lifts the hood and hands me a cup of black coffee that I hadn't asked for and I just thought I'm in heaven this is the greatest job in the world (laughs) and that's what makes me want to keep on directing (laughs) because it's perfect well they wouldn't consider you didn't get a chance to do anything like that on 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 cut no but on your highness um I, I it was my last week on your highness and um I arrived in to talk to Mark about moving on to Game of Thrones and what was going to happen. And uh, I could see by the look of Mark's face that something had gone wrong. And I said to him, what's up? And he said, uh, we've lost a load of pickup shots and I have no idea how we're going to get them. Now, pickup shots are just that's what they are. They're pickup shots. They're kind of needed in case, you know, you need to use them. And sometimes they're essential. So... Um, you know, I'm, I'm saying, well, what about the second unit? He said, nope, the first unit's away with the actors. The second unit's doing a, a chase through a forest. And this was on the Wednesday. And this was all going to happen in the next two days because on the Friday, they were going to dig up the set that they needed to shoot in. So on Friday, that was the last chance they would have of getting the pickup shots. And I said to Mark, well, are we really talking pickups? He said, yeah, it's, it's, it's hands coming and grabbing weapons. It's, um, it's characters running about. And I said, I could do that. And he said, oh, wait a minute, you've directed some stuff. He said, you could, couldn't you? And I said, well, yeah. He said, okay, look, he said, go away and draw some storyboards uh, of what you think that we might need. And I'm going over to talk to David Gordon Green, he said. So he goes over to talk to the director. So I got out to my 
office space and I'm sitting there drawing these storyboards from the script and the phone rings and I pick up the phone and Mark says, David thinks it's a brilliant idea, come on over to set. And I said, okay, Mark, and I put the phone down and then, oh, Jesus, what have I done? What have I committed myself to? This is a $60 million feature film and I'm going over to talk about directing part of it. So, so I walk over and uh, David um, is going, well, well, this is brilliant. You're going to do uh, our stuff on Friday. And I said, yes, David. And I said, no, it's a fantastic idea. We need this shot. We need this shot. We need this shot. I think we need about 15 shots. Can you do that? And I said, I think I can do that, David. I've worked out about 20 shots. I said, excellent. And he went through some of my stuff. Yeah, we could do this one, this one, this one. Don't need that, but we need this and so on. And, um, and he's going, yes, I think this will work. And he said, hey, Natalie, have you met Will? Will, this is Natalie. And I turn around, and it's Natalie Portman. And I'm going, oh, my God, hello. And she's going, hello, Will. And we start to talk, and then I realize I have to talk to the director. And that's it. And I just think, she's going off to shoot her thing, and I'm going to talk to the director. And that was the most disappointing moment of my life. But I do still have my Natalie hand. <laughs> it's occasionally nice to do. <laughs> so that was it. That was my big moment. And on the Friday, that was the Wednesday, on the Friday, because um, on the Thursday I, I did a little bit of rehoning. And on the Friday I walked in at 7 o'clock in the morning to be ready to shoot for it. And I, I arrive and uh, my friend Barry Keel is there as the AD. And Barry had worked on my short film that I'd done a, a while previously. And uh, he goes, hey, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm your director today. And he went, no shit. And I said, okay, yeah, but I am. He said, excellent. So I wander on in. And um, then I, get my, I go and talk to the, the director of photography and we discuss what we need to do and I know I need to move fast and I know that he's normally renowned for taking his time and I ask him directly, you know, okay, as soon as we've got the shots, you know, we have to move on and do you mind, you know, if we're going to work fast through this? And he said, not at all. And in came my, my first um, uh, stand-in and it's my friend Sarah who's standing in for Natalie Portman, who was the girl against the brick wall in the uh, the short. And Sarah walks in and says, hey, well, what are you doing here? I said, I'm your director today. And she says, no shit. And I'm thinking, what is this no shit business? And uh, and that is the way my day went. It was it was brilliant. We got all the stuff done on time. Um, I would start filming. They'd stop digging up the set. Um, when we finished the, the, the take, they'd start digging up the set. And then we'd set up the next bit. And that was the way it went. Well, they're going to be spin-offs from Game of Thrones. I mean, we've heard quite a few about that. <laughs> but I need to do a lot more stuff if I was ever going to get a, um, a directing job on it. Which, I mean, I, you know, that's the thing when you're storyboarding these things. You know what way you would shoot it. You know, there's a couple of scenes I'd been mentioning to some of the guys earlier that I got to do with no directors in town. Um, there was the Joffrey riot scene and then the Sansa getting attacked scene in season two. And basically, I'd been thrown a few photographs of Dubrovnik and asked to, could I sort out a few things? Chris Newman was, uh, there were certain elements that he'd asked me to do. And I went away and drew up this sequence. When David Nutter saw it, who, he was over in the States at the time, we sent it over to David. David loved it and said, this is great, we'll shoot it. And so he came over and he did. He shot the stuff that I'd drawn. Um, this, the same thing happened with, um, in season three. Chris Newman again asked me to, to kind of look at some of the, the problems that were going to be on this ice wall climb with Jon Snow and the Wildlings. And so I was kind of, because obviously we didn't really have the wall the size that we know and love it to be. We had this thin strip in the studio that was going to have a lot of dry ice smoking all around the place and, um, and so on. And so I had to work it out from the point of um, really interesting angles that told the story well but kept it contained and so that when we would break out and realizing well that's a cg shot you know that's where the money's applied you, you know you kind of know that every cg shot um goes from being something that's a few thousand pounds up to being something that's twenty thousand pounds or something you know each each cgi shot becomes really expensive so you're really working on the technical side of things like well i just i just tell the story the best way i can but you can see where there's big wide frames in it and they look and go, okay, that's going to be the expansion and so on. And they know what, how much money they've got allocated to that particular scene. So it's a case of have we done it within the confines of that or do you have to chuck something? So you tell them make it for that. For yeah. That so, so, so Alec, when Alec saw the stuff, and I had worked with Alec Sakharov in the first season um, with the Tim Van Patten episodes because Alec was his DP then, but Alec was promised to uh, directing 
a thing. So um, uh, season three, he was going to be directing. And um, he saw the storyboards. He loved the storyboards. He said, this is perfect. We'll shoot this. So when he came over, he shot the storyboards. So what's really nice is, that, again, there's these couple of scenes where the way I was thinking at the time was, if I was the director, what would I do with these? You know, what would I do with that scene? So I had to sort it out for me. Now, because when I, when I do my own, my own stuff, I do my own storyboards really, really tightly. It's like, I thought I'd be really loose on my own boards. Oh, no, I sit down and be meticulous about it because I want to make sure that I've got it all panned out so that the day I go to shoot, all I've got to do is concentrate on an actor. And, and it makes it, um, you know, I think the plan really helps. I mean, I'll get more confident later, but the point is the plan helps me then. And, and I think that's what happens with um, something like the boards and, and Game of Thrones. Um, you know, certain directors are very meticulous about what they needed. Other directors were a little bit easier about it. Um, but in the end, it's the guideline that you either see totally on screen that you've solved a lot of things, or it's a looser guideline and you see the essence of it on screen. But you, you, you became more and more meticulous, do you think, as you worked on it? Or? On Game of Thrones? Yeah. No, I mean, certain scenes, yes, when you knew you had a little bit of time. I mean, when you get to see the storyboarding book, because um, I hope you'll all rush out and buy it because it'll be so bloody brilliant. Mm. Anyway, when you get to see it, um, you will see where I was really enjoying myself and you'll see where there's, a, there's a better drawings and other more, times there's less. I think more artists will spot that more than non-artists. Yeah, maybe I mean, so. Yeah. yeah. No, but I do. I do think some some points it's very clear. Yeah. And there's other points where you had to be rushed. We had to. We had no time to turn things out. So. One last question. This is from a friend who mentioned this. That apparently there was something that was rejected for the Battle of Winterfell, the recent, well, about the last episode. Don't know and anything about that. Oh, you don't. Oh, well, no. I can't. Oh, yeah, of course. No, no, it's, <laughs> it's just happened though. It's in the past. No, I still don't know anything about it. Okay. <laughs> is, there, we have, is there anything else anybody wants to ask? I wanted to ask about ice spiders. Because that's not a up. real question. Okay. Uh, there's one over there. Um, of the um, shots that you've drawn, are there any particular ones that like, were almost hard to draw because as just the writing almost didn't want it to happen with some stuff that happens with the characters? Oh, God. I don't know. Um, you know, uh, the thing is you're given a, a brief on what to draw and really... I don't, I don't necessarily find it difficult to draw. Um, I just kind of have to, you know, work out what angle it is that we're drawing from. Um, sometimes, yeah, sometimes angles are, are awkward, but um, it's never difficult. It's, it's just, you know, you're telling that, that part of the story. So, and there's, there's nothing in a way that was what they didn't want to see because you're only told about the stuff that they do want to see, if you know what I mean. So the thing is, um, uh, there's never a negative approach to something that is already positively worked out. And um, uh, I mean, I just, I just love drawing this stuff. I mean, you got into it. The only time I found it difficult was whenever there was so many changes to be made. On, on the basis of something, you know, having to... It was almost like um, animation having to be moved a little bit to the left, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the left, like that. Um, and because uh, you re you know, there's a part of your head that's going, well, really, when they set up the camera, this is going to be different anyway. I mean, it's going to roughly... It's going to have the same idea of what you've drawn. But when you get down to the physicality of putting a camera up and you've got everybody waiting around to do this, the shot, it is going to be different. You know, it's going to be within the frame and it's going to be generally where you place things, but not really. Not an exact size. No, it's not. It's not a, a storyboard is a guide and it's, it's a really good guide and it's a necessary guide for big movies. And I wish low-budget filmmakers would realise that if they put the money into that guide, they would save themselves so much money when it came to actually shooting a scene. There would be no... Uh, difficulty with making up their minds about what they were going to shoot because it would already have been worked out. The, the, I saw a movie being made in Belfast where a guy came over with his whole storyboard worked out and he got it worked out in the States. He came across to, to Belfast. People were talking to him about it. He became incredibly arrogant. He threw away the storyboard, this, this, um, this book of storyboards, and he went in to shoot the film. It's possibly one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life. And, and the thing is that, you know, 
even if it had been stick figures that he'd got, a stick figure plan, you know, that would have helped more than what he ended up doing. He wasn't that good a director to be able to pull off some kind of auteur approach to things, you know. It was um, it was such a shame. And and I don't understand that, you know. You know, when, when ego gets in the way of good sense, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense at all to me. And I mean, I've worked with directors who have denied that they storyboard and I've actually storyboarded for them. And that's really interesting. There was, a, there was a lovely little movie that I did just before we go, I guess. There was a lovely movie I did years ago with Neil Jordan called um, Breakfast on Pluto. I don't know if anybody's seen it. Um, it is, if you haven't seen it, go and watch it. Killian Murphy's in it, and it's absolutely bloody brilliant film. It's an Irish film about a strange Irish kid and his search for his mother. I've and it's, seen all of his it's, films. It's brilliant. Anyway, it's brilliant. And, it, and it's set at a difficult time period and so on. And anyway, I, um, the first storyboard guy was fired. Neil hated him on site, it turned out. Um, the guy had come in, hadn't read the script, had no tools with him, and made a joke to the director. <laughs> so the director didn't like this. And, um, and I got a phone call from a friend who'd worked with me before and said, look, would you be interested in, in coming down and working on this Neil Jordan movie in Dublin? And I said, oh, sure. Um, is there any problems? And he said, well, he's fired the last storyboard artist. And I go, okay, is he difficult? <laughs> and he said, well, he can be. And um, I said, oh, it's okay, man. Send me up the script. Let me, let me read the script and um, uh, you know, I'll be down. So I got the script on the Saturday. I was going to be down there on the Monday. I sat in my favorite coffee shop in Belfast and read the script in two hours. This is an hour and a half script. You know, and, and a good script you will read. It'll just breeze past you. And um, because at the same time, uh, I had a friend's script to read um, who was trying to get a horror movie made. Now, that should be really basic. And the thing was, it took me three days to read his script. And I mean, that was with me having to go back over so many things. The Neil Jordan script was beautiful. It was like, you, it had grabbed you instantly. And um, uh, so I went down on the Monday and I arrived for eight o'clock. Um, Neil wasn't going to be in until 10. So I said to the guys, what, what scene is, or scenes is he thinking about working on? And the guys told me like he was going to be discussing this or this or this. And I said, well, can I go and sit down and just kind of look at them? Um, so I sat and I, I, I started thumbnailing ideas based on what I was reading. So Neil arrives in and the guys introduced me as his new storyboard artist. And he looked at me like, What? And uh, I said, <laughs> uh, yeah, I understand that you're thinking about certain scenes. I, I've, um, I started uh, just putting some ideas down. He said, oh, you have? I said, yeah. Um, he said, come into this room. So we went into this little side room, and he started looking through the stuff, and he was going, yes, yes. Can we, can we bring this out a bit further? Because I want these birds to come down the street um, and so on, and fly past and come around this corner, and so on. Yeah, no problem. And and I'm um, and he was just checking the drawing. So with a few changes, he said, "When could you have have that for me?" And I said, "Probably Wednesday." Um, and he said, "Okay, excellent. This is your room. You stay here. Don't get involved in anything else, and get on with this." I said, "No problem." And off he went. And I thought, "Well, okay. He didn't seem that difficult." <laughs> and I um, I drew the scene. And I had it finished by Tuesday afternoon. And so I thought, well, I need to get, I may as well get in touch with the guy. And I, I asked the, the art department, uh, have we got Neil's number? I need to give him a call. And they were all like, oh my God, because Neil had fired so many people. And um, I rang him and said, uh, Neil, I finished this. Uh, can I come and show it to you? And he said, absolutely. He said, we're at such and such a place. I went out. They cleared space at the table. I sat beside Neil and the production, um, uh, the DP. And we talked over the stuff. And he was really pleased with the stuff. And everybody else was like, it was almost like they were all sat down at the other end of the, the table. <laughs> and I'm up here with Neil. And... Um, because nobody does this. Nobody rings him and comes and sees him. So I kind of had broken a bunch of rules straight away, but it didn't matter because I was doing the right thing. And he liked what I'd done and gave me another scene to draw up. The DP said, these are fantastic, and off I went. And I had the best time on that film. I, I did something like, it was like four weeks, and um, I drew up a whole bunch of stuff. He was really happy with it. He didn't remember my name, but he, he said, I hope we work together again later. And... 
The film came out. It was a really cool success in Ireland. Um, he came up to give a talk about it in Belfast, and we were in this big area this, this, uh, that, that they were doing the thing, the talking. There was an old prison, and um, we're all sitting around. And, and my friend Kevin Jackson, who was BBC at the time, was interviewing Neil, and he asked him about storyboards in, in uh, the film. And Neil said, "I never use storyboards." And um, I'm sitting there in the audience thinking, oh, shit, you know, I was just starting to feel really bad because I'd done these storyboards and he's denying them. And Kevin said to, to Neil, but you, didn't you use a storyboard artist on, on Breakfast on Pluto? Um, one of our, our Northern Irish uh, artists up here was down working with you. And, oh, yes, I did, didn't I? And I nodded, yes, you did. <laughs> and, and he said, oh, yes, I did. And then, then he talked about it. But it was so funny to get to that point. And there are a lot of directors will not admit to using boards. Now, I've worked with Neil three times. So, you know, he's, he's very cool. I really like the man. I would work with him any time. He's, he's, he's good to work with him because he knows his film inside out. So I did Ondine, which is a Colin Farrell movie with him. Uh, it was a beautiful little film. And I did Byzantium, which was the vampire movie that I did a couple of years back, and that was that was great to work on. Anyway, there you go. That's that's my life in film. In film. <laughs> Thank you very much, Will. Thank you, Will Simpson, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, folks. <laughs> um, okay.